All right, Matthew 17. Today we'll be looking at first 13 verses. Matthew 17. Great. So today we'll be looking at Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. As we come to this passage, it's interesting. We have a mountaintop experience, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but uh, did you know that many important things happen on mountains? Particularly in the Bible, many important things happen on mountains. Uh, for example, uh, one of the most dramatic examples is the appearance of God on Mount Sinai. Uh, he first appeared on Mount Sinai to Moses. Remember Exodus chapter 3? Uh, here's a picture of, of what kind of happened, not in Exodus 3, but later on when the law was given. But in Exodus 3 there, remember Moses is out in the wilderness tending the sheep, watching over the sheep, and he sees this bush on fire that's not being consumed. And of course, uh, any anybody... Uh, with any curiosity at all, be interested in a bush that's on fire but is not being consumed. So Moses goes over. God spoke to Moses from that bush. But later on, after uh, God used Moses to help lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, they they came again to Mount Sinai. And it was there that uh, God gave the law to the Hebrews. Uh, Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the laws. And so when... Moses was up on the mountain. You can see somebody's artwork there, what it may have looked like. But anyway, uh, when Moses was up on the mountain, God showed his power in magnificent ways. It's an awesome story to read. Read it in Exodus. Uh, anyway, we, we, but there, the, it, it's often called, it's called the mountain of fire sometimes. In fact, there's even a DVD called that. But there was, there was darkness, storms, thunder. Uh, even even Moses' face was glowing when he came off the mountain, and, and the people didn't even want to look at Moses' face. They wanted to put a veil over his face, just because of God's glory was just shining forth. Another predominant example in the Bible is on Mount Carmel when God answered Elijah's prayer. He gave the opportunity to the prophets of Baal to, to bring fire down from heaven on their sacrifice, and of course nothing happened. And Elijah's, Elijah just prays a short little prayer of about 35 words, and fire comes flying down from heaven from God and destroys the entire, the entire sacrifice, and, and including the stones and all of the water. <laughs> it's an amazing event. And, of course, the, the false prophets of Baal were defeated in 1 Kings chapter 18. Interestingly enough, not too long after that, God appeared to the prophet Elijah, again at Mount Sinai. As uh, Elijah went, fled south, he went to a place called Mount Sinai, and there again God appeared to him. But today we have, we've we come to another important mountaintop experience. We often call this the Mount of Transfiguration. That's not its real name, in case you're wondering. We don't actually know for sure which Mountain it is, it is. In fact, as there's there's at least three options. Uh, as I was reading uh, about this, at least three options. So the mountain is is really not that important. And probably, if we knew which mountain it was, there'd probably be some shrine up there, and people making too big of a deal out of it. So fortunately, we don't know what it is. So let's read together this this event that took place about two thousand years ago. This. Start reading in in, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter 
and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. That ends the paragraph. Well, in our passage we just read today, we're going to see five proofs that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man, the Son of God, the true Messiah, the divine King. The first proof that Jesus is deity is that we see the transformation of King Jesus here in verse 2. It says that he was transfigured before him, or sorry, before them. That's an interesting word. The word uh, was transfigured is from our, our Greek word, not our Greek word, but from the Greek word metamorpho. Sound familiar? Metamorpho, very similar to metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is the process that a caterpillar goes through as it, it goes into its chrysalis and then comes out as a butterfly. It's an amazing metamorphosis, and a, a, a transfiguration, if you will. It's an interesting term. Uh, the basic meaning is it's changing into another form. And of course, we get our English word metamorphosis from that. And so, because no further description is actually given here about Jesus, we, we, we know the, of the change here. Uh, there's just a, a, a brief description. Uh, all we know of the change is there's this divine glory that's, that's shining forth from Jesus. It says, the Bible says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. It didn't say he he was the sun, as S-U-N, but he's shining like the sun. In other words, he's bright. Even his clothes are affected there in verse 2. It says his clothes became white as light. So Jesus, if you will, is removing this veil that's around his humanity to reveal his majesty and glory. He's revealing what he really is, if you will. Problem is, mankind cannot cannot bear God's glory. So Jesus had to, had to walk around and live with this veil on. And so the Jesus who had been living 
for over 30 years in this ordinary human form, he's now partially seen in, in this blazing brightness of God for a, for a glimpse moment, just a short moment. From within him, Jesus' divine glory is manifested before three of the apostles. The, the, the inner circle, if you will, was represented here in Peter, James, and John. And here's the greatest confirmation of Jesus' deity yet in the life of Jesus. Here, more than any other occasion, Jesus is revealing himself as he truly is. He is majestic. He is bright. He is amazing. He is the Son of God. And as the divine glory is just radiating from his face here, it illuminated even his clothes. The Bible says his clothes became white as light, and Light portrayed Jesus' glory and majesty. We often see that throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, Peter was so amazed by uh, what he saw in Jesus' transfiguration. G- uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, actually wrote about it later on in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Apostle John also briefly addresses what happened here on the mount. He says in 1 John 1.14 that we beheld His glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, that awesome experience, you need to understand something, is just, it's just a foretaste of the day in which the Bible says in in Matthew 16, that the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. On that day, Matthew 24 says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 25 says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So in his human form, Jesus Christ was veiled. In his human form, he was veiled. But when he comes again, his second coming, he's going to come in full divine majesty and glory. The veil's going to be removed. And so from now on, there, there, there could be no doubt in at least Peter, James, and John's mind that this Jesus, this king, was... God in human flesh. The second proof we see in Matthew 17 is is the proof of the the testimony of two Old Testament saints. And by the way, when you think of saints, don't think of old dead people or fat little babies with wings on clouds or don't please don't think anything like that. Okay, Uh, just saint just means a a Christian. Okay, simplified as we can get. All right, and we got we got two Old Testament Christians here. And they're Christians because they were looking forward to Christ. They had put their faith in Christ. And, of course, we're talking about Moses and Elijah. If you look at verse 3 and 4, Moses and Elijah were there. They appeared to them. Jesus was actually talking to them. Matthew doesn't say here, but one of the other Gospels says they were actually talking about Jesus' death. Elijah and Moses were talking with Jesus about his up-and-coming death. And so as these three disciples were just watching in, a, in amazement what was happening to Jesus, suddenly Moses and Elijah appear, and they're just shrouded in the Lord's glory. 
the testimony of those two Old Testament saints was, is, is, I should say, the second confirmation of Jesus' deity. You may be wondering why these two men were chosen out of all of the godly men that God could have chosen throughout Old Testament history. Why Moses and Elijah? Oh, there's a lot of speculation, and I, I, don't, I don't dogmatically know for sure. Some have gestured, well, th- those guys had mountaintop experiences, and Jesus is on a mountain. Maybe that had something to do with it. Scripture really gives no clear explanation, but it seems that more than, than the others, the other people in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah typified the Old Testament man of God. That's one reason. Uh, also, Moses was synonymous with the Old Covenant, which, of course, the Lord gave through Moses, remember, on Mount Sinai? The Jewish scriptures were often referred to as Moses and the prophets. And, of course, by Moses, when, when it says that, it's referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of your Bible, which are often called the Pentateuch. Besides, the Lord himself... Uh, well, Moses was arguably the greatest human leader in history. After all, I mean, we think about this. He led an estimated two million people through the wilderness for 40 years. They never planted any food. <laughs> They're out in the wilderness. They're in the desert. I mean, it would have been very difficult to find food and water, but yet here's Moses leading all these people. And these were a rebellious people often straying from God and worshiping idols. And so before the people of Israel had formal prophets, Moses was a, was a kind of a prophet. He, he brought them God's word. And, and before they had any formal priests, he was kind of like a priest as well. They would often come to him. He mediated between them and God. Before they had formal kings, he was kind of a king as well. He, he ruled over them in God's name. So that, those are just some of the reasons why people think maybe this is why God chose Moses. But why Elijah? Well, perhaps the only other Old Testament man who could have stood with Moses was Elijah. He's quite well known. He's even mentioned in the New Testament. Of course, Moses was the great lawgiver, but Elijah was the great defender of the law. He was one of those great prophets of God. Uh, this prophet was, of, of course, very zealous. The zeal just personified him. He was a godly man of unmatched courage. He was bold. He was fearless in many ways. He had a heart for God. He walked with God. He was the instrument of God's power. He did amazing. God did amazing miracles through him. He was the preeminent prophet of God. He was, to the Jews, the most romantic Old Testament prophet. Moses and Elijah represented the Old Testament. They represented the, the, the two main parts of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And as no others, they could give human testimony to Christ's divine majesty and glory. And, that's, and for those main reasons, that's why a lot of people think God chose Moses and Elijah. So we don't really know exactly for sure, but... Um, I don't think Peter quite understands what's going on here based on on his response in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, Peter basically gives a foolish idea. He offers to build these these three tents or these three tabernacles. 
uh, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Peter was foolish in perhaps thinking that Jesus might not have to die off after all. Remember, he didn't want his friend Jesus to die. Peter was also foolish in placing Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Moses and Elijah, of course, knew that their testimony to Christ was now complete. They knew that their their whole life and ministry was just pointing to Christ. In their ministries, they, they were merely proclaiming the word of the law and the prophets. They knew they were not the end. They weren't the, the grand goal, if you will. But Jesus Christ was both the giver and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He said he was. And so these guys are, are there to point to Christ. And Peter's coming up with these foolish ideas and and it seems like he's putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Well, I'll just build a tent for all three of you. That wasn't the purpose. So these these guys were pointing to Christ. They're they're there declaring Christ's deity. They're declaring that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Number 3, the third proof is the testimony of God the Father. God the Father speaks here in verses 5 and 6. If you look at verse 5, it says that, he, that, that while he was still speaking, behold, this bright cloud overshadowed them. Remember, clouds are very significant in the Old Testament. Uh, so think of the Shekinah glory. Think of that pillar of cloud leading Israel in the wilderness. Right? That was God representing, leading them in that cloud. Clouds are very significant in the Old Testament. And again, this cloud comes down. And God speaks from the cloud and He says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So we see the testimony of God the Father. This this is the third confirmation of Jesus' deity here. And the, the response is absolute terror. It was terror that was caused by the intervention of God the Father while Peter was speaking at this moment. So through this form of this bright cloud, God overshadows the three disciples and he, he speaks to them in this, this, I don't know what kind of a voice it was, but it, it just, they were terrified. God the Father spoke to them in an audible voice, it says. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And by the way, these are almost the identical words that we see in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. And we will see them again later on as well. Uh, very similar. So, so Jesus, or God the Father is continually backing up His Son. This is my Son. He is God in human flesh. Listen to Him. Now, listen to Him is the only thing that's different from Matthew 3 at, at the baptism. So, what, what is God the Father saying? When, when He calls Jesus His Son, the Father is declaring Him to be the identical nature and essence with Him. He is my Son. I mean, those of you who are parents, that's, that's, that's what we do when we, when we have a child and we, this is my, my son or my daughter. They have my genes. All right? But there's even, there's even a closer knit relation. There's this identical nature and essence when, when God says, this is my son. God the Father is saying, this person in human flesh is God. And calling Jesus his beloved son, beloved, the Father declared 
not only a relationship of the divine nature, but it's also a relationship of divine love. He's not only my son, but he is my beloved son. It's a wonderful inter- term of endearment. They had a relationship of mutual love. It was a relationship of commitment. It, it was an identification, complete union there. In saying, when, when God the Father says, with whom I am well pleased, the Father is declaring His approval on everything that the Son has said, he, what, what He's done, who He is. And that's why the Father says, you need to listen to Him. Because I'm in agreement with what He says. I'm in agreement with what He's done. And I'm in agreement with what He's going to do. So everything about Jesus was in perfect harmony and accord with the Father's will. It's, it's a great proof and confirmation of Jesus' deity. And then God the Father directly addresses the three disciples here when He says, listen to Him. Listen to Him. He was saying, in effect, hey, you guys, Peter, James, and John, listen up. Here, i got something to say to you guys. If my son, Jesus Christ, tells you he must go to Jerusalem and die, believe him. If my son tells you that he's going to be raised on the third day, then believe him. If my son tells you to take up your cross and follow him, then do it. If my son tells you what to do, then do it. All right? That's what God the Father is saying. Listen to him. Listen means you don't just hear, but you obey. You do it. By the way, Jesus said he's coming again. We need to listen to Jesus. When Jesus says he's coming again, we need to listen. Take heed and believe. Number four. The fourth proof is Jesus' interaction with his disciples here in verses 7 through 9. They're terrified. They've, in verse 6, they've fallen on their faces. They're shaking in their boots, so to speak. They're quivering and shaking here. They're, well, they're, they're, they don't, they don't quite understand what's going on. They're, they're afraid. And so Jesus comes and he, notice the first thing he does, verse 7, he touches them. He touches them. And he tells them to rise and have no fear. So the comp- fourth confirmation is, is really what, is we, what's going on in this scene is just pointing to Jesus' deity. Jesus is the center of the scene. In fact, we see it in the wonderful language of our Bible at the end of verse 8. It, it said, notice it says that they no longer, they no longer saw Moses and Elijah. Notice the end of verse 8 says, Jesus only. Jesus only. It's very emphatic in the Greek language. They only saw Jesus. That's all they needed to see, by the way. And here he is. He's, he's the center of the scene, which again, it, it's pointing to Jesus' deity. He's standing on a high mountain here. Just, by the way, just as he will at his second coming. The Bible says he's, he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. The Bible says in Zechariah 14 that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. So Zechariah 14 is pointing to Christ's second coming, saying Jesus is going to come back on a mount. And when he comes, Thessalonians and Jude says he's going to come with his saints. 
Here he is, he's accompanied by Moses and Elijah, the saints of the Old Covenant. But when he comes again, he will be accompanied by saints. Maybe you. And when he comes, the Bible says he will, he will, he will come with his saints, he will minister to his own people, just as he's doing here with Peter, James, and John. He cares. That's why he touches them. He tells them, don't be afraid. So Jesus' first actions and words after this uh, amazing, mighty display, is he's, he's gentle, he's loving, he's caring. Well, knowing the great fear of these three companions of Jesus, Jesus comes and he, and he touches them and he tells them, don't be afraid, rise up. And, and as they lifted up their eyes, it, I can only imagine it would have been great relief to see Jesus. And by the way, uh, as they already said at the end of verse 8, they only saw Jesus. They saw Jesus only. And as they saw Jesus, the disciples realized they had witnessed this preview of the Lord's second coming. And, and once they regained their composure, they must have had a strong and understandable desire to run down. And, and, and hey, you know, I could just see, see Peter. He, he's, he, he's wanting to go blab his mouth like he usually does. He's wanting to go tell everybody and you know, as we all would, wouldn't we? I mean, if you saw that, it'd be pretty hard to keep your mouth shut, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm going to go tell everybody, man, you should have seen Jesus. He was awesome. Well, that's what they wanted to do. Of course, Jesus knew that, and he said, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa here, guys. Okay, hold on. And so as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, hey, don't, don't, tell, don't tell this to anybody. Don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the grave. I can only imagine that would have been difficult. If you've ever had to try to keep a, a secret, uh, that, that can be a difficult thing sometimes. And, and sometimes we blow it and, and we, we blab our mouths and blow the secret, uh, even though we're trying to, try not to do that. But the problem was here, um, why would Jesus do that? Well, it's, the, the, you have to understand, again, the Christ that most Jews were expecting is, is not the Christ who had come the first time. They're expecting the Christ of the second coming. You know, coming in great power and glory as, as King and, and Messiah. They're not expecting Him to come and suffer and die on a cross. Well, this wasn't His time to be King. He knew that. That's in His second coming. The fifth proof is the tie with Jesus' forerunner, which, of course, Jesus explains is John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as the last prophet to proclaim and point to Christ, to prepare the way for the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 10, of course, the disciples were wanting to know about Elijah since they had seen him. It doesn't really say how they recognized him, by the way, so <clears throat> somehow they did recognize him. And when they recognize this was Elijah, they're, they're asking these questions because the Old Testament talks about Elijah. In fact, the very last verses in your Old Testament talk about Elijah. Uh, I'll point those out to you in just a moment. And so having just seen Elijah up there on the mountain, I mean, the natural question uh, for the disciples was to say, hey, you know, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So apparently the scribes were teaching this sort of thing, but... You have to understand this particular teaching was not just unique to the scribes. 
but it was also a, a scriptural teaching. Uh, we see it in the, the book of Malachi. The prophet Malachi declared this about the Lord in chapter 4, verse 5, on the screen, I think. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The very last verse, the very la- in fact, the very last word of the, the Old Testament ends with a curse. And of course, you saw Elijah's name there in the last book, in the last chapter of the Old Testament. So, maybe they were thinking that. And so the prediction that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah was well known to the Jews of Jesus' day. Therefore, as Peter, James, and John came down the mountain with the Lord, they, they couldn't help but wondering, you know, why is Elijah here? What, what's going on? You know, how the appearance of Elijah is actually fitting in with Malachi's prophecy in, in chapter 4 there. And so they asked, hey, if, if you are the Messiah, as we have believed you are to be, why did Elijah not appear, not appear before you began your ministry? Can you, can you understand where they're coming from? That's basically what they're wondering. Hey, if you're the Messiah, and Malachi says, Elijah's going to come before the Messiah comes, then how come we didn't see Elijah? That, that's basically what they're asking. Well, Jesus basically answers their question, at least sufficiently. But we, part of the answer is this. You need to understand that the Elijah prophesied by Malachi was not to be a reincarnation of the ancient prophet. Okay? God never intended to bring uh, a reincarnated Elijah back before the Messiah came. But, of course, as the angel of the Lord told Zechariah in, in Luke chapter 1, in, that, in Luke 1, when he was talking about his son, John the Baptist, who was, of course, the prophesied forerunner, uh, the angel of the Lord said that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So the angel of the Lord, who I believe is a pre-incarnate Christ, is explaining a little bit more, helping us to get this picture. This Elijah is not the physical Elijah. No, it's someone else, but he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's Luke chapter 1. John would not be the ancient prophet come back to earth, but would minister in, in that same style, if you will, in the same power as Elijah. So they should have understood this. Uh, in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus had told the disciples, in fact, here's what Jesus said. He said, he said that John is Elijah who was to come. So they, they should have understood that. Jesus said it, but they didn't get it. Like We often don't get a lot of things. So, and Jesus ends, again, he says here in verse 13, in case, in case they don't get it, in verse 13, he says that the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So do, you, do we all understand? John the Baptist is the one who comes in this, in the style, if you will, of the prophet Elijah. Well, what application can we gain from this passage? Well, I just got two simple, well, I think they're simple. Two simple points to make, okay? And, and the first one comes from what God the Father said to Peter, James, and John. He simply says, listen to Jesus. 
Listen to Jesus. Good advice. Listen to Jesus. And by the way, listen to Jesus as he has chosen to reveal himself. I'll add that. Listen to Jesus as he has chosen to reveal himself. That's what the voice from the cloud said to the disciples. But you might ask, hey, uh, Pastor Scott, how am I to listen to Jesus since Jesus is not on earth at this moment? The Bible says he's gone to heaven. He's going to come, he's going to come again one day, but at the moment he's in heaven. He's, he's at the Father's right hand. So how am I supposed to listen to Jesus? I mean, well, here's how you do it, okay? The way you listen to Jesus and do what God the Father says here is you hear what Jesus has already said in the Bible. He's given you plenty to consider already. All right? Now, if we just, if we would just do what he says here, uh, that, well, that, that's enough for us, isn't it? It's sufficient. God's word is sufficient. Now, you might say, well, hey, man, that's just so common. Come on. I mean, is it, is it that simple? Just listen to what Jesus says in the Bible? You know, I, I, you know, some people really want these mountaintop experiences. You know, they, they, they want to be there with Peter, James, and John, or with Moses up on Mount Sinai, or Elijah up on Mount Carmel. They, they, a lot of people want those mountaintop experiences. They want a personal experience. You know, they want to see the bright lights. They want to hear the thunder. And if they're not hearing the thunder and the bright lights and getting amazing personal experiences, you know, they're, they're depressed and, they don't feel like they have God's blessing. You ever met those kind of people? It's really sad. Really sad. They're seeking for all this, this extra biblical stuff. Well, if that is what you're thinking, let me remind you what Peter's wise observation was concerning this event. Here's what he says. It's on the screen. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. All right? Now, with, with that context in mind, it, let, let me be clear. You understand Peter is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. This event we just read about in Matthew 17, where Jesus is transfigured, metamorphosis, right, right, right before their eyes. And I want you to notice in that context what Peter says in the very next verse. I put it on the screen here for you. Verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now I've underlined two key words. In case you're not getting the point, put the word and pay attention together. Because Peter is saying, you need to pay attention to the word of God. Pay attention to the word of God. In fact, Peter says, it is more fully confirmed even than my own personal experience with Jesus on the mount. Whoa. This means that Peter's mountaintop experience was a very important event. An important, it was an important experience. 
But he adds that there's something more certain, more confirmed than even his own personal experience. We need to pay attention to the most, or pay, put most attention to Scripture. That's what Peter's saying. Even more than our own personal experiences. Peter's saying the Bible is more certain than even, even if we think we're hearing a voice from heaven. Do you, you, you hear what Peter's saying? Because there are heaps of people in our world today who think they're hearing all kinds of voices from heaven and having amazing experiences, visions and so forth. They need to listen. You need to listen to what Peter says. Listen to, listen to what Jesus says in the Word of God as He's revealed Himself. And, and this truth is relevant for our day because we live, as I said, in an age when people are ex- appealing to their experience as the only sure measure of anything. And in fact, I've even called them up on the carpet sometimes. Hey, your experience goes contrary to the Word of God. Which one are you going to go with? Well, almost inevitably, they go with their own personal experience because, hey, my experience trumps the Word of God. Whoa. Wrong. These people don't seem to realize that experiences can be wrong or misleading. How do you know your experience is right? Oh. Anyway. Never quite know. So we hear people justifying all types of unbiblical teaching or behavior, and they, and, and here's some of the things I've heard. Hey, God told me this is right. Really? Chapter and verse, please. Oh, I don't have a chapter and verse in the Bible. Oh, well, then how do you know it was God who said that? Uh, and then uh, and here's another one I hear all the time. Hey, I, I feel at peace with what I'm doing. Really? Well, here's what the Bible says, and you're not doing it. Yeah, well, I feel at peace anyway. No. You, do you see the point? You probably hear those sort of things all the time. But listen to what the Apostle Peter says. And remember, he's an apostle of the Lord. He's an author of Scripture, inspired of the Holy Spirit, a man who's had this amazing visual experience. He's seen Christ transfigured right before his eyes. <laughs> he's heard an audible voice, God himself speaking. And he says, he says, um, he says that the speaking of God's written revelation in the Bible is more important than his own personal experience. Wow. Why is he doing this? Well, <laughs> how much more relevant can you get, right? I mean, we, we live in this age where people love their personal experiences. Peter's reminding us, hey, we need to evaluate our experiences by the Bible's teaching. And if it doesn't match up with the Bible's teaching, then we, you certainly got to call into question your experience. My question to you is, do you always do that? Do you always do that? Or do you go with the gut experience or the gut, the gut feeling and these, these feelings of peace or whatever? My friend, if you're a Christian, you need to understand there's coming a day when you're going to be able to hear the audible voice of Jesus. So if you're longing for that, I got good news for you. It's coming, but it's not right now. All right? One day you'll get to hear the audible voice of Jesus, but not today. Not tomorrow. Well, maybe tomorrow. But for now, your, your duty, your duty as a Christian is to read, mark your Bibles, study your Bibles, learn from your Bible, digest and meditate on the Word of God. That's what God's given to you. 
It's sufficient. In fact, it's also Peter who says that the Word of God is He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? And so, if you do this faithfully, if you're, if you're in the Word of God and learning and digesting it, then God's going to teach you all you need to do to live for Him and to serve Him. So point number one is listen to Jesus. All right? A very important point. And then the second one is simply this. You must worship Jesus Christ. He's the one who's worthy of worship. He is the one who is, who is God in human flesh. We see all these proofs in this passage pointing to Jesus' deity. And so it's the only proper response when you recognize who Jesus is. I think we often need to do what Peter, James, and John did. We, we need to fall on our faces. We need to understand the fear of the Lord. And I don't, I don't mean to be cowarding in a corner sort of a thing. But it might be helpful for us to, to see who Jesus is. He's, he's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He's far more than that. He is the Lord. He is the King of glory. Jesus is the one who fulfills and transcends the ministries of these two great miracle-working prophets, Elijah and Moses. He's greater than them. He trumps them. He, every, they're just pointing to Him. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who's worthy of worship. So my friend, I ask you, are you worshiping Jesus Christ? This is not something to be taken lightly. He is worthy of that worship, but are you, are you giving them Him that full adoration and worship that, that He deserves? Or is your your worship pulled in other places like mine often is. You know, we have idols of our hearts that are constantly there that, that bother, they certainly bother me. These idols of my heart, myself, you know, my, my own affections and pleasures and my children and my, even my own job and so forth. These, these are all various idols that, that are drawing the worship away from the one who is worthy of all worship. Be aware of that. Fight it with all your heart. May Jesus Christ be honored and glorified as he deserves.